was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, Series 4, Episode Number 1. Yes, we're back again. Thanks for joining us as we welcome in a new series, refreshed and rejuvenated from our regular trip to the Shrublands Medical Clinic. The fourth series outing can always be tricky, but we'll be looking to offer the quality and depth of Thunderball, the production values of Spectre, the fun and wackiness of Die Another Day, but ultimately we'll be aiming for something that's out of this world, much like Roger in Moonraker. So stay tuned for our best series yet with the return of our favourite segments and the addition of some exciting new ones. So whatever your Bond sensibilities, we hope there'll be something for you to enjoy. Before we start, a quick reminder that we're available on all podcast platforms, so you can go back to any episodes you may have missed from our first three series. Lots of film reviews and interviews to enjoy there. And also do consider giving us a quick review wherever you're listening. They help us spread our spectre-like tentacles across the Bond community. You can also get in touch with the show through our various social media channels. Just search More Cubby and you'll find us. Alternatively, you can send us an email, morecubby at gmail.com. Either way, keep your questions and comments coming. We'll try to include the best correspondence in future episodes. Now, our previous series concluded with an interview with Stephen Begg, who helped create some of the stunning visual effects of the Daniel Craig era. And if you remember, we also shared our ultimate top Bond actors list, David Niven firmly rooted to the bottom, of course. Uh, but in fairness, the competition was very fierce. Uh, this series, we're going to mix it up a little bit. 007 Best Lists will be returning, but as you can probably tell from the title of this episode, our main feature will be changing. But before we get to all that, let's introduce my co-hosts. Firstly, he's our Welsh Mr. Kill. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Thanks so much, Martin. It's good to be back. As you say, I am very much the Welsh aficionado of, of the Bond community now. Um, I, I'm now based in South Wales. As ever, we always do our regular shout-outs for our fellow fans and followers on our social media channels. So we've got on Twitter, thank you to Collins Anderson, Film Nerd, Crystal Stedman, On Location Tours, Jennifer Palacio and Matt H. And a real quick mention on Facebook as well to Micah Garden. Yosello Gonzalez, I hope I've pronounced that right. Um, and we just wanted to give a really quick shout out as well to Luna, who got in touch with us on Twitter um, to say that she's just got into the show um, and she's actually put together a Bond playlist of all her favourite podcast episodes. So we're included on, on that list. So thanks very much, Luna, for the, the kind words and, and hope you're enjoying the show too. Yes, thank you very much for that, Luna. I wonder which of our episodes made that the uh, that list. I'm not entirely sure which our finest hour was. I mean, probably VJ Amritraj, I guess. I mean, that was a very good episode. Yeah, it's not going to be the Doctor No episode, is it, that first one? Audio quality was woeful, on it? We need to do a George Lucas-style remaster of probably the first two, don't we? Because the amount of people who probably thought, oh, I'll listen to that podcast, I've heard it's good, I'll start with episode one, and it's so bad and shocking. But that's the case with all of them, though. So I feel like we're all in the same boat. It's just that one is particularly dreadful. But if you're going to listen to us, please start with like Goldfinger or something. Don't worry about the first two. We'll review all the films again at some point. Just just 
catches up then. And secondly, he's infinitely more interesting and memorable than his live and let die namesake. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? Oh, yeah. What happened to the Adam in live and let die? He's the guy who went into the back of the boat, isn't he? After the big bayou chase. I'm very good. I'm eyeing up, actually. Have you seen there's going to be a big um, auction at Bonham's of a load of Roger Moore's old stuff? I'm just eyeing up what's on sale. Compared to the prices of the 007 store merchandise, these are pretty reasonable. If you want one of his dinner suits from Octopus, your review to a kill, 30 grand. Silver Aspey cufflinks, 1,200 quid. A large collection, that's highlighted, of silk ties and cravats. That's 500 to a grand. That might be a steal. Also, the backgammon set, which he used to play cubby at, you know, behind the scenes on the sets. There's a little travel backgammon set. That's only 100 to 150 quid. I'm tempted to put a bid in for that. I just get the feeling the 007 store will be in the background just bidding furiously so they can increase the prices threefold. Yeah, I've recently got into the James Bond trading cards, especially the autograph ones. And some of the Roger autographs are quite expensive. I mean, more expensive than I'd rather have the Beckham and set, to be honest. But is one of them, of course, a rare photo of Sean Connery signed by Roger Moore? It is worth $150. What can I get for 75 cents? Uh, you may purchase this charming hamburglar adventure. A child has already solved the jumble using crayons. The answer is fries. That's one for the Simpsons fans. Okay, so let's kick off episode one with a welcome return of On the Scene, where we take a closer look at some of our favourite and often underappreciated scenes in the Bond franchise. This time we're kicking off with Burkhoff. Yes, we're examining the unhinged ramblings of General Orlov in 1983's Octopussy. And to first summarise what happens, this segment would not be the same without one man. He promised he'd come back for Series 4 if we provided a year's supply of Toblerone. It's over to Mr. Alan Partridge. A bunch of British actors with dodgy Russian accents sit around in fancy dress in a knockoff Doctor Strange Love war room, wanging on about NATO not being a threat. Bit bloody topical. Then, raging loony General Orlov pipes up and goes into full thespian mode. General Gogol is presumptuous. He speaks for himself and others who cling to timid, outdated, and unrealistic policies. Must I remind you, the committee, of our overwhelming superiority over NATO forces? He whacks on a TV remote and spins the entire room around to face a big multimedia game of risk where he's getting a right hard on about how many tank divisions he's got lined up in Czechoslovakia. And apparently he's played some computer war game five times against the vest and won every bloody time. Gogo manages to stand up even while the big table's moving again to spit out, This is outrageous madness! Never! The vest is decadent and divided! I see no reason to risk war to satisfy your personal paranoia and thirst for conquest. Then a bloke with bushy black eyebrows tells Olaf to shut it, and he slumps back in his chair like a told-off child on a naughty step. Then Russian money penny slips him a note, and he manages a cheeky little smirk. The end. Oh, 
Well, thanks a lot, uh, Alan. I mean, Stephen Burkhoff is quite something to behold, isn't he, in, in the whole of Octopussy, but particularly this scene, very memorable, absolute madness from him. It's the, it's the combination of the diction, the way that he's saying the words, as, as Alan so brilliantly uh, recreated there, and also the physicality as well. He looks unhinged in, the, in those moments. Uh, so yeah, I think it's a wonderful performance from, uh, from Burkhoff. Nice counterpoint to Walter Gattel as General Gogol. Of course, we know him from previous Bond films, so we're kind of, even though this is supposed to be the enemy side, we're kind of on Gogol's side uh, at this moment as well, which I think is quite a, an interesting dynamic. Stephen Burkhoff's maniacal portrayal of, of all of it is just like nothing we've kind of seen before, really. And, you know, also we'll, we'll see Christopher Walken in the next film kind of take it to the next level again. But, but you know, I think Burkov has this real talent of playing the villain as well. You know, when you look back at his kind of career, when he was, he would go on to be in Beverly Hills Cop as well as, as this kind of conniving businessman who was completely ruthless. And, and again, it's this sort of, this sense of menace that we get from his character. Um, I also just wanted to touch on the fact that, you know, this, this scene is quite timely as well in terms of current affairs as such at the time. Um, because there was a really big talking point about, you know, nuclear disarmament being a huge topic in the early 80s. And there was a real fear of, you know, still of the risk from the Cold War of, of genuine nuclear war. So the the plot itself, although although it's dealt with in quite a pantomime way, is, is very much, you know, there is a sinister undertone to this because you, you really can imagine this might go on in, in behind the scenes. Yeah, that's really true. And that's why this scene in particular is almost a microcosm of what we love about Octopussy. There are these serious, very timely end of the Cold War things going on in it. Uh, they they sort of are hinting in the lines as well at uh, sort of domestic problems of the USSR and that sort of collapse of socialism. It's very much in its death throes. But as you say, it's also mental and hilarious. And that's all coming from Stephen Burkhoff. I love that he's kind of in the shadows, isn't he, during his big speech at the big uh, the big board. We can sort of see all the graphics and his tank deficients lining up behind him. But he's just in shadow, which really brings out those mental, crazy body shapes uh, that he's, he's putting into it, which obviously is very much what Burkhoff was known for in the theatre of the time, as Phil rightly says he goes on to some good villain roles. Rambo 2, of course, First Blood Part 2. But here he's known as the big, highly physical, notoriously avant-garde stage actor, and that's exactly what he brings to it here. Yeah, I feel like we should highlight the, the script writing as well. Maybe parallels with Moonraker and Hugo Drex. Of course, when people think of Octopussy, they don't think of the, <laughs> the great writing, I don't think. But in this scene, uh, I think it really works well with uh, with Burkhoff's portrayal. Well, how about his Russian accent? What do we think if if Connery in Hunt for Red October is a zero out of ten? What's what's Burkhoff? He's definitely better than that. I'd have to ask an actual Russian, um, you know, for, for real information. I just love the glee and the slow pace of his speech as well. I mean, he really savours it and relishes it and takes his time over it. And it makes for a really good mix of what he's doing physically with those alternately very powerful postures when he's at the, the board. And then that sort of weak slumped in his chair posture afterwards when he's been shot down. But like he really does savour that dialogue and just squeeze every inch of glee from it. Yeah, absolutely. Just going back to the uh, the accent point as well, I, th I think Burkhoff does a hell of a lot better than, uh, I believe it's an Irish actor called Dermot Crowley, who we see later in the film, who's meant, to, I think he's the Russian general camp, I think. So he he's basically explaining how the bomb works when it goes off. It's a very ropey sort of Irish-Russian hybrid. So if, if you've never spotted that before, then then sort of stick with it because it, it does get ropey. But no, certainly Burkhoff 
again, he really makes this scene his own. You know, it, it's the fact that he controls that room entirely. Even Gogol can't really bring him under reign. He's, he's almost like a sort of a loose cannon or a um, you know a guard dog gone off gone off the rails. Really, yeah, you know, that sense of evil you get almost from him in in this scene as well, because it's the fact that you know he really is ruthless. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, he's curiously underused as a villain. They sort of introduce him here and you think he's going to be the lead villain. And then, of course, pretty much the next scene, Kamal Khan comes into the fray uh, and he sort of becomes more of a shadowy puppet master, a bit like what they do with Whitaker in Living Daylights. Um, but also, I guess he, he sort of in that way forms part of a triumvirate of villains, which is very similar to From Russia With Love, which, of course, had kind of, I guess, Blofeld, Kleb and um, Grant. This one, in a very similar way, has Khan, Orlov, and technically Octopus at the start. I guess sort of Gabindamore as the sort of muscle as it goes on. Did anybody else get sort of the opening credits of Dad's Army in the head when they saw that back? Because that's that's all I can see when I, that map is so bad. That's quite good, Phil. That's almost as good as my Never Say Never Again and Father Ted comparison. How many sitcoms can we compare Bond to? Who do you think you are kidding, Mr. Orlov? I was going to bring up Never Say Never Again, as obviously that's the rival to this, and that's kind of got the rubbish, awful computer game graphics going on as well, obviously in the sort of domination game, which is ever so slightly more impressive than this, but it's still kind of... Picking up on something, um, you mentioned Gogol before, and it's interesting, Gogol, in this scene, isn't it? It's kind of the first time we've seen him in the context of the wider USSR high command, you know, not just sat behind his desk in his... Of course, Lewis Gilbert said it was a ridiculously extravagant set, the one that his office is in, that huge room. Um, but it's interesting because all the others have quite a lot of respect for him. Everyone's basically falling at his feet. I mean, the head honcho with the eyebrows kind of gives him almost a lover's look when he talks about the report he's done for him. Um, and the costuming's interesting as well. Sort of Gogol and all of our, I think, two of the only ones in military costume. I thought they were all in military gear, but actually not many are. Most of them are civilian. So there's an interesting dynamic between those two on the one hand and everyone else on the other, who are presumably just in charge of like waterworks and electrics and so on. And they're just thinking, oh, oh do it really? How many tanks? Do we really need to go to war? Yeah, just think half of them are just like plumbers and just people <laughs> you know the public services and they just accidentally strolled into like a major military meeting the, the rest of them are just the engineers who made the the whole thing spin the, the tables and the chairs yeah they're all just the tech team they're just there in case anything breaks down the tables revolving back round and gogol's spitting feathers and it just stops and jams halfway just my closing point for this scene as well. I think we need a shout out to the Russian secretary that very unsubtly hands all of his piece of paper. I'm not sure, you know, if she is credited in the film. Maybe Penelope Smallbonesky. I don't know if that's her official title. Miss Money Ruble. I'm surprised the others aren't more suspicious of that note because this guy has just advocated potentially starting a nuclear war by invading the West. And then he's sort of handed this secret slip of paper. If I was Gogol, I'd be like, what is on that paper? Yeah, and the smirk as well. If the, if the note didn't give it away, all of us ridiculous smirk at the end should have. What maniacal scheme are you clearly thinking about, all of? Nothing, nothing, General Gogol, nothing. So we move on to what will become our main new feature for Series 4, and we're very much looking forward to this. It is Bond 26, 
So basically, we are we're slightly disgruntled, as we know many of you are, at the lethargic pace at which Eon Production seems to operate. Uh, certainly, since they wrapped up No Time to Die, so we've decided to take things into our own hands, and we're going to map out Bond Twenty Six. So each episode of Series Four. We're going to imagine that we're the ones in charge. Uh, we're going to make the important decisions that shape the next Bond film, the casting of actors, the locations, the plot points, etc. Uh, it's a big job, so we're going to need your help as well. We won't make any of our final decisions without consulting you over on social media. And then by the end of Series 4, hopefully we should have a clear vision together about what Bond 26 is going to look like. And uh, Barbara and Michael may or may not want to steal our ideas. We'll discuss the legal issues when they arrive. Uh, so we start with some of the, the vital areas, the important ones, of course, they're going to affect the direction of Bond 26 and the whole franchise really moving forward. Of course, we need a, a new James Bond, the uh, the old one's dead, or at least Daniel Craig's version is dead. Let's, uh, let's be clear about that. Uh, so we need a new one. And of course, we need a, a suitable director as well. So uh, let's firstly, we'll go to Adam. Who are your picks? We chose three each. Uh, three potential candidates to be the next 007. Who have you pumped for? Okay, so yep, I've got three picks for you. First is my long-time tip for Bond, which is Luke Evans, the Welsh actor. He's still sort of around his mid-40s, so if we get three or four out of him, could be a good older Roger Moore-style Bond. Uh, I think he's got the looks. I think he's got a natural Welsh charm, and he's quite funny as well. Uh, so I think he could sort of straddle a bit of more with that Dalton intensity. Um, he's got plenty of action chops. I thought he was great in The Hobbit. Uh, he was in one of the Fast and Furious films as well. But he's also big into his musicals, so he's not afraid to look silly, particularly when he took on uh, Gaston in Beauty and the Beast. And also, because he's a star singer, he could be the first Bond actor to sing his own theme tune. Uh, so that's Luke Evans. Choice number two for me would be Henry Golding. So this is a very talented British Asian actor. So the old diversity box is ticked. But more importantly, he is tall, he's dark, he's handsome. He has that sort of posh confidence of Bond as an old Etonian. Uh, he came to prominence in Crazy Rich Asians, so he can handle romance and comedy, but he's latterly moved more into action roles. He did The Gentleman with Guy Ritchie, and he was in the most recent G.I. Joe film, Snake Eyes, although it did bomb, so the less said about that the better. Not his fault, a very talented actor. Um, and he's also done some really interesting indie films, uh, particularly a film called Monsoon by Hong Chow, who's also directed Ben Whishaw in a very acclaimed film. So he's sort of got similar credentials and he's in a very sort of similar space in his career that Daniel Craig was in. Uh, and my final sort of last minute kind of choice would be Paul Mescal. This is the uh, the guy from Normal People, uh, the TV series. He's a very popular sort of heartthrob. I think he's going to have a lot of appeal, sort of younger audiences, which Bond has sort of been criticised a bit for not having in the past. He got an Oscar nomination for his last film, After Sun. Uh, he just won an Olivier Award for playing the old Brando role in A Streetcar Named Desire. But he's also moving into action films. He's going to be the lead in Ridley Scott's Gladiator 2. Uh, so he's Irish. So again, we've got a little bit of that charm of Brosnan could smerge that in with the muscularity and the sensitivity of Craig. But as I say, with greater appeal to younger audiences. So those are my three picks. Luke Evans, Henry Golding, Paul Mescal. I was going to mention actually, I haven't even considered Paul Mescal as, as an option, but as as you kind of pointed out, he is, you know, a brilliant choice. The kind of normal people came from nowhere, really, as a smash hit, and that kind of, as you say, it kind of skyrocketed his career. And really, you know, as you say, he he can blend that mix of you know very serious tone, but also with with possibly those lighter hearted moments. 
my minor quibble with Luke Evans. Luke Evans is a fantastic actor. He's shown he can play the leading man role. He's shown he can, you know, take the mick out of himself. He's not afraid to do the one-liners and so on. I just cannot get over the fact he's in the Fast and the Furious films. It just... I don't know. I mean, I love cars and I just cannot stand the Fast and the Furious films. They're so stupid. Yeah, newsflash, everyone. Phil loves cars. Although I didn't know you hated Fast and Furious so much, Phil. I would have. I thought you would have thought they're okay, at least. They've just made so many. I've, I've got to about the fifth or sixth one and then I just gave up because they just kept they kept going. I was, yeah, I I just couldn't stand it anymore. So I had I had to give it up. Well, I mean, Luke Evans was only in one, so we can kind of forgive him for that. The other key thing to say, actually, is that he's one of the very few sort of very prominent mainstream actors who is an out gay man. So, you know, if you're talking about radical Bond casting, getting an out gay actor to do it, that's your that's your money right there. Yeah, you've covered the diversity boxes very well there, adding with your picks. I like Henry Golding, of course, has the Bond connection, worked with Michelle Yeoh. Yeah, well, Michelle Michelle Yeoh was his mum in Crazy Rich Asians. Maybe you could write that in. Maybe uh, Bond and Wei Lin had a kid and it was him. Now he is Bond. Yeah, that would fit in the Daniel Craig timeline. Bond is dead, but he's got this mixed Asian kid. You know, he's, he's got kids everywhere these days. Strangely, one of the continuation novels does have him having had a child with Kissy Suzuki and you only live twice, but there you go. So those are Adam's picks, Luke Evans, Henry Golding, and Paul Mescal. How about Phil? Who have you gone for? So the first pick I went for was was quite a safe bet, really, with Taron Egerton. Um, of course, probably best known for his portrayal of Elton John in Rocket Man, and of course in the Kingsman films. Again, a very very talented young actor at the top of his game at the moment. Really, you know, he he's kind of one of the darlings of Hollywood. Whether he'd want to take up the Bond gig since he's now still been working on the Kingsman films, maybe not. But I think that the fact that he has such versatility, you know, that again, as Adam said with Luke Evans, the fact that he's, you know, he's comfortable sort of taking the mick out of himself. And, and we saw in the Kingsman films, you know, how he can do the wise cracking and the, you know, he's not afraid to balance that, but he can also do the more serious tone as well. I think he'd be a great pick. I think he's about our age as well. So, you know, sort of 33, 34. Um, my second pick would be James Norton, who's a slightly older actor. He's 37 now. If you're not based in the UK, you've maybe not come across him before. He has mainly had a TV career, admittedly mostly playing sort of villains and kind of unscrupulous characters. So probably his biggest role to date has been in Happy Valley, where he played Tommy Lee Royce. He has also shown that he can play the sort of the lead starring role. He was in a spy drama in 2022 called Rogue Agent. So again, as the lead role, he was showing his approach to playing the kind of the spy who was under pressure. So they're really the first two fairly safe bets as such. But my third one, again, sort of just ticking the diversity box as such, was an actor called Lucian Laviscount. But his biggest role to date has been um, in the Netflix series Emily in Paris. So I believe he played the love interest for part of that series as well. And there's also, um, you know, a wide mix of different TV shows that he's been involved with as well, mixing from drama to comedy. So... Again, as as a person of colour, he's he's a great choice for for the role, and and you know, and he has that sort of physique to be able to carry off those sort of stunts and um, you know, a lot of the high intensity action that we're so used to with the bomb films. Again, he's the youngest of my trio that I've picked. So 
he's only 31, so that would put him kind of in the realms of George Lazenby in terms of being one of the younger actors to play Bond. But again, that might be to his credit because, you know, he's, he's got longevity there. Bill, have you been made to watch any of Emily in Paris? Because as far as I can see, the only man who has willingly seen it is so far is Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. I haven't watched any of it. Maybe I'm missing out. No, it doesn't seem it. Uh, yeah, interesting choices. I almost was at university with James Norton. I think he had just left just as I got there. Uh, so, you know, hey, if he does, if it is him and I almost got the chance to act with him, that would have been a bit of a claim to fame. But sadly, it uh, didn't happen. Edgerton is interesting, isn't he? You, you sort of sense because he is so known as the Kingsman and from those films, they probably wouldn't want to muddy the waters much. Um, but then Roger Moore was the saint and Bond, so not necessarily. Yeah, I think I had the similar feelings. I think he'd be a, quite a good Bond, but is it is the Kingsman too similar? <laughs> I guess the Saint was similar, wasn't it? But it, but the Kingsman feels like a, a direct Bond parody almost. Yeah, I was going to say, I think for me that was I, was, I had the same feelings. But you know, I think from you know, in terms of his abilities, he'd be very well suited. Certainly with you know that balance of serious acting and the sort of wisecracks. Whether we could compare him to a young Roger would be a Maybe a bit of a stretch, but you never know. Yeah, I mean, it's not, uh, we're not casting Mike Myers. It's not going to be Austin Powers. Oh, I nearly suggested Mike Myers. And so we move to my three options here for uh, for Bond actors. And uh, my first choice, we couldn't really have this list without including this man. It is Henry Cavill. So I feel like he would be the fan favourite. Of course, he narrowly missed out to Daniel Craig last time around. You could argue that he's, you know, he's waited long enough now. He deserves his shot. Maybe some parallels to a young Timothy Dalton missing out to to Roger all those years ago, uh, or Brosnan having to wait his turn after Dalton. So uh, people have this perception that the new Bond always has to be a relatively unknown 30-year-old. But uh, there's still there's a history, isn't there, in the Bond franchise of actors waiting their turn and then eventually landing the role. So yeah, Henry Cavill, I feel... Similar mould to Daniel Craig. You'd imagine that he'd be doing his own stunts. Uh, he practices Brazilian jiu-jitsu in, in real life. Uh, he's left the other projects that he was involved with. No longer Superman. He's no longer The Witcher. So that does seem to be paving the way for this big role uh, if he wants it. So personally, I think he would be the best available. And, uh, and the Bond films nowadays always go for the best available. Maybe one aspect would be his age. Of course, he is in his 40s now. But Roger Moore started when he was uh, was 45. My second pick was, uh, I guess, a relatively unknown actor, Tom Bateman. Uh, he is Daisy Ridley's husband. Not that that doesn't make much difference, but he's a, he's a British actor who is married to another British actor. And I haven't really watched many of his things, uh, but I have seen a few interviews with him. And he seems to have a good personality, nice deep voice. He's got the good looks. Uh, he's about our age, 34, I think, 35. And he started as a, a stage actor as well so kind of timothy dalton vibes he started did uh, much ado about nothing with david tennant and Catherine tate which shows perhaps he can do a bit of comedy and he starred alongside m herself dame judy dench in uh, a winter's tale as well so as i say i haven't really seen much of his work uh, so this is based purely really on his appearance and uh, the way that he comes across in interviews and then my final pick uh, now this one really did come from left field you may recognize this man from uh, Malcolm in the Middle where he played Chad the uh, the small OCD boy 
Now, he would be the first American Bond. Uh, he would be the first Ginger Bond. Those two things alone, the tabloids, I'm sure, would have plenty to uh, talk about. My final pick is uh, Cameron Monaghan. Now, he doesn't really look like a stereotypical Bond. Uh, he looks more like a villain, actually. He, he played the Joker's younger incarnation in TV show Gotham. But I'm really impressed. What I've seen of him so far, I think his acting ability is really good. And importantly, he can do the serious stuff and he can do the comedy as well. Actually, he's one of those rare creatures, a former child actor who seems well-adjusted uh, and down to earth. So again, I think his personality would fit very nicely. And also he's in the Star Wars franchise. If you play video games, Jedi Fallen Order and Jedi Survivor, he plays Cal Kestis. So if we're looking for a bond for the, the video game generation, he would fit nicely into that one as well. I think anyone who can give a good acting performance in a video game uh, is a good actor. So I, I think that would transfer across, but uh, I get a very unlikely choice, I know. But uh, those are my, my three options. Probably, Martin. I did just have to Google who Cameron Monaghan was, so that that might well again, you know, a lot of people didn't know who Daniel Craig was when he was cast as Bond, so that might not be a mark against him. But no, I, I think they're fairly decent suggestions, Martin. You know, obviously Henry Cavill has always been on the kind of willy wonty list for pretty nearly twenty years. Obviously, you say you know, obviously Daniel Craig kind of pipped into the post. He even if you know they they considered him as a as a supporting role to a Bond actor, I think it would be great to have Henry Cavill in, in the series. Yeah, Cavill is interesting, isn't he? Martin Campbell even said, because he directed the screen test Cavill did uh, alongside Craig back at uh, Casino Royale and said it was outstanding. So by all accounts, he'd be very good at it. Um, and certainly he is available. And you also make a very good point, Martin, about sometimes you sort of nearly get Bond and then you get him later, as happened with Dalton and Brosnan. The thing I do like about Cavill is he's very endearing in person and he's completely confident and unapologetic about standing up for the things he loves and championing his projects. Even when they were treating him very badly as Superman, he stood by the character and kept the faith in what he represented. Um, as for Cameron Monaghan, if we're going for a Malcolm in the Middle actor to do Bond, surely Dewey or the dad get Brian Cranston in. Yeah, I was or thinking Cranston could be the villain. He the could reunion. be the villain. Didn't that black kid in the wheelchair in Malcolm in the Middle get really hench? So he could presumably do it now. So those are our choices for the uh, the Bond actor position. So we'll put those on social media. Uh, you can give us your opinion on who you think we should cast as 007. Uh, so to go alongside our new Bond, we do, of course, need a new director for this new direction of, of Bond 26. Two picks, I think, for uh, for this category. Who are your directors, Adam? So I've got one sensible suggestion and one slightly wacky suggestion. Uh, my sensible one is David McKenzie. He's a Scottish film director. Uh, he's been active for about 20-odd years now, maybe just over. Um, his recent hit films have included Starred Up, the prison drama that shot Jack O'Connell to stardom, Hell or High Water, which was Oscar-nominated Best Picture, which is a kind of modern Western starring Chris Pine and Jeff Bridges. Uh, and then he also made uh, Outlaw King, the Netflix film about Robert the Bruce. Um, and I think Mackenzie would be very good. I think he's just the kind of no-frills British director who'd make a really good Bond film. He's very versatile. Uh, he's a journeyman who can do lots of different genres. Uh, he's proved he can handle action and working with big star actors, Pine Bridges, Ewan McGregor, he's also worked with a couple of times. Uh, and he doesn't have much of an authorial style, so he's one of the great Bond directors who would service the material rather than try and put too unique a stamp on it. My second choice is Taika Waititi. 
And here's why I say that, because Bond 26, I think, needs to be funny. So let's get the world's current leading comedy filmmaker, his three sort of earlier New Zealand set films, Boy, uh, What We Do in the Shadows and Hunt for the Wilder People, starring could have been Bond Sam Neill, of course, I think are absolutely outstanding and hilarious, all of them. And of course, since then, he's made the last two Thor films for Marvel, including Ragnarok, which a lot of people say is amongst the best of the Marvel films. So he's proved he can handle big visual epics, big scale productions, and he can take an inventive approach to action. Uh, he also always takes a funny cameo role in most of his films. So it could be time for him as, as the comedy Kiwi ally or henchman as well. So those are my two, David McKenzie. And if we want to take a big risk, a big roll of the dice, let's call on Taika. I think they're quite solid choices, Adam. I hadn't even thought of Taika Waititi as a as an option. Obviously, you know, with his work with the Marvel films recently, I think I think that is quite a, a genius move to get somebody that could maybe do not so much slapstick, but could do a bit more of you know the comedy moments. Yeah, I think when we're discussing the directors, we kind of have to think about uh, what's the overall direction of Bond. And I think we're we're pretty much agreed, aren't we, all three of us, that it needs to be a slightly more comedic portrayal. Uh, so yeah, I think even though it was your your joking suggestion, Adam, I think Taika might be might be the one. He is free now as well. He was going to work on a new Star Wars film, but I think that's been canned. So as far as I'm aware, once he's got his marriage to Rita Aurora out of the way, I think he's available. And how about Phil? Who are your two picks for director? So my two picks were Martin Campbell, of course. Hopefully, all Bond fans and followers will know of his work. For me, I think he'd be the perfect choice for an introduction to a new Bond just because he's done it twice before. Both films, you know, I think we all three of us agree are two of the highest standards in in the franchise itself. I think he understands, you know, what the traditional Bond fan looks for and and what kind of a a general cinema-going public goes for as well. So I think striking that balance, he'd be very good at that. Possibly not against him, but he is, I think he's 79 now. So obviously he is coming to possibly towards the end of his directorial career. But I think he himself has been quite vocal saying, you know, in a jokey way that if the Bond producers want to give him a call, he'll, he'll gladly answer it. So I, th- I think for me, Martin Campbell is a really safe pair of hands because, you know, he's been there before and he knows how to deliver that introduction of a new Bond to the franchise. My second pick is a possible, a bit more of an unknown and it's a director called Jan Demange so he is a French Algerian director in his mid 40s now so he's still quite a young director but he's done a lot of different work with TV and film direction and again it's been quite a varied mix of productions that he's worked on so he directed the Charlie Brooker sort of dark humor comedy drama Dead Set in 2008 that was one of his early credits since then, he's moved on to a number of different projects, including in 2014, he worked with Jack O'Connell on the Northern Ireland drama 71, which looked at the start of the um, obviously the IRA troubles. You know, whether he's maybe a bit more of an outside choice is, you know, that's understandable. But I think that from his track record, although he's not a prolific director, you know, certainly when you compare him to directors such as Christopher Nolan or someone like that, but I think when you look back at what he has delivered, there's a lot of quality to his portrayal of, of different characters. And I think he can work quite well with the British actor as well to generate that portrayal of Bond. Yeah, they sound like solid choices, Phil. I'm surprised I didn't go for Martin Campbell, but I kind of don't want him to ruin his legacy. I'm confident that he wouldn't, but there is a chance that he might. So if there, even there's a small chance, I don't want him to do a third one because everyone will be saying, 
Oh, Martin Kemble was great, yeah, but you know, what about that left one? It was dreadful, though, wasn't it? So I want his legacy, his Bond legacy, to be intact. I think he can retire peacefully. I think the other thing with Campbell, of course, is if he did do it again and did it brilliantly, then you always have to have him do the first film of the next Bond actor, which presumably means keeping him alive somehow, uh, well past uh, natural human ages that you can live at. I was gonna I forgot to say in his contract he's got to be cryogenically frozen after the age of ninety-three. So you know he's 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 gonna be he's gonna be around forever, I think. And so my two picks for director, my first choice is uh, the Mexican director, Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, I've said the Bond franchise goes out and gets the biggest names in the business. I feel like he is a big name director. He's nominated for 11 Oscars. He's won four of them. So it's just the sort of caliber I think we need for uh, for Bond. And hopefully he can bring that kind of sleek sophistication that we got from the Craig era and then transfer it into the, uh, the new era as well. So yeah, as much as I like John Glenn's Bond films, I don't think we need to go back to that style. I think the... The awe-inspiring cinematography is where we're at, and I feel feel like Cuaron is the man to make a a visually stunning picture. And he's also no stranger to British cinema as well. He's Mexican, but he's lived in London with his family for a number of years. Uh, He directed the best Harry Potter film, Prisoner of Azkaban. He's been, he's he's a Bond fan as well. He was a voice of the Bolivian soldiers in Quantum of Solace. No other director on our shortlist has been in a Bond film. Martin Campbell was not the cyclist in GoldenEye. And he also directed Children of Men back in 2006, if you remember that film with one-time potential Bond, Clive Owen. So yeah, that's my first pick, uh, Alfonso. And my second pick is uh, Edgar Wright. Maybe he's not quite as high profile as some of the other names on our shortlist here, uh, but I feel like if we are heading down the comedic direction, then I think he's certainly a a good choice. He's worked on TV comedy, uh, Alexi Sale, French and Saunders, Space. Uh, He's done film comedy, of course, his most famous the, uh, the Three Flavors Cornetto trilogy of Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End. And if you take a look on IMDb, there's a quick, a nice little summary video of uh, Edgar Wright's signature scenes, the favorite ones that he likes to include in his films. And they include bar scenes, fight scenes, and car chases. So on paper, at least, you know, he's the perfect match. And apparently a few years ago, he did have his own idea for a Bond film. So yeah, that's my second choice, certainly, that the more comedic route, uh, but I feel like he'd, uh, he might be quite a good pick. Yeah, I think Edgar Wright is a really smart choice. And he has gone on record saying he's pitched to the Bond producers, as you say. So he wants to do it. And also he talked about his theory of the light chocolate, dark chocolate approach to changing bond actors when once you've done light you have to go dark so i think he'd be bang on what we've always talked about as as wanting from the next film he'd do it as light chocolate quaron would be wonderful if he'd do it i'm I'm not entirely sure he would now he's sort of he's not really gone back to franchises i don't think since harry potter um but yeah he would give real visual dazzle if he were to do it that that'd be a dream director really for it what what i really love about all our choices there for director and actor is we've actually taken this fairly seriously you know, but we, we've not just done the whole, oh, I think Christopher Nolan should do it. And, and I think Tom Hardy should do it. We've actually thought about who would be really good and gettable for the most part. So well done. <laughs> well done, us. Got some research. <laughs> okay, so yeah, those are our picks. As I say, we'll put those on social media. Uh, and you, our listeners, our cubbies can help us out. And uh, maybe in the, the next episode, uh, we'll try and finalise who do we want to be 007 and who's going to be our director. And of course, we'll discuss the, uh, the next part of uh, Bond 26.
Okay, so we move on to our next segment, which is the 007 best segment, where we decide on a top seven in a specific Bond category. And if you remember from our previous episode, the end of series three, we mentioned a great bit of correspondence we had from a listener who'd sent us her top seven Bond girl dresses. So what we've done is we've uh, we've stolen her idea and we've invited her on the podcast to, uh, to talk about those dresses. So we've combined her list with uh, each of our lists to come up with the ultimate cubbyhole top seven Bond girl dresses. Firstly, we should probably introduce our guest. A very warm welcome to Carrie. How are you doing, Carrie? Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. It's very exciting. I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, we're very excited to have you here. Thanks so much for, for following up your list by actually coming on to help us chat about it officially. Um, but first, Carrie, tell us a little bit about um, yourself uh, and also how you kind of got into the Bond films initially. Yeah, well, I got into the Bond films quite early on. Um, so in the 80s, I had my Betamax video recorder and uh, whenever it was on the telly, I'd record it. Uh, with my brother because my brother likes them too and um, we would just watch them over and over again so uh, we got into them yeah very early on and then when we were old enough we could go to the cinema to to watch them so that's how I got into Bond and uh, yes it's sort of a, a love of film finally got me into working in the film industry as well but before that I was a graphic designer and a book designer and then ended up working as a prop maker um, in the film industry. Excellent. And um, of course, this is the official top 007 Bond girl dresses we're about uh, to go into. But but of your choices uh, initially, or, or sort of ones that you've thought of since, are there any that sort of didn't make the cut that, that you remain a really passionate fan of? It's probably ones that aren't as show-stopping as the ones we've got, actually. So there's a, there's a lot in Honor Majesty's Secret Service that I loved. I loved Tracy's um, fur coat, which I would never wear nowadays, loving animals so much. But she looked very stylish. Um, Honey Rider was fabulous in Doctor No, and she had this little silk tunic at the end of Doctor No, which I still want and still try and find something that looks like that. Gosh, there's so many, though. I mean, it's a yeah, the costumes in Bond are just one of the reasons why I loved it so much. Yeah, it's great, great to meet Carrie. And to let's kick us off. Number seven in seventh place, we've gone for Tracy's casino gown from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. This is where Bond first meets Tracy in the casino. Quite understated dress, really, compared to what we'd we'd see in in future films. But nonetheless, a very very elegant outfit, of course, worn amazingly by um, Diana Rigg, who who you know kind of was one of the style icons of the sixties. Yes, this might have been um, from my list. The reason I love it is because it's so simple and elegant. It was the most classically beautiful. I love the length and the weight of the dress as well. So she got to slink around the casino kind of almost like she didn't care. And of course, you've got the signature deep plunging neckline, which you have from all of the best Bond dresses. Um, and that makes it sexy as well as elegant um but also the white the reason why that's so perfect is if you look at the background you've got this very garish casino with all these colors and it's very sort of purpley very 60s um sort of colors and so her dress actually stands out from the background because it's this pure white um yeah and that's why i loved it yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? And the fact that it's white also, I guess, foreshadows the fact that she's going to be in that white reading dress um, at the end of the film, which is itself, I guess, similarly very racy. You know, you talk about the neckline here 
And it's amazing that like she almost leads with the neckline. That's the first shot we see of her in this dress, isn't it? There's no big reveal coming downstairs as Lazenby gets in that tux. We literally just see the sort of shaft of light, I think, on the neckline as she bends over the table. So that intense erotic appeal of the character is front and centre. Number six. Okay, so in at number six is Solitaire's Priestess Robes from Live and Let Die. So designed probably by Julie Harris, the film's costume designer. These are the red robes above a sort of floor-length formal gown featuring a kind of sheaf silhouette. You can tell I've done my reading upon this. A sleeveless plunging v-neck uh, with a high slit at the skirt. And the Priestess Robes are interesting for Solitaire. They're very much a sort of symbol of status, but also of her power. Uh, but the outfit itself is, is absolutely stunning, isn't it? I mean, of course, the red, but also everything that's sort of adorning it as well. Yes, I think um, Solitaire had to be in the top seven. She has so many outfit changes and so many incredible costumes in this. But yeah, this one for me was the one to pick. It's just so beautiful. It's so detailed. And apparently it's made from Indian cotton and silk velvet, which was purchased in purchased in Liberties and Harrods. And her shoes, those little, little velvety boot things, they were from the once the royal, royal family's preferred shoe shop as well. So Julie Harris said that money was no object when creating the costumes for Live and Let Die. And you can really, really see that. They're so opulent. Just, I, I dread to think how many sort of hours it must have taken to not only to put it on, but just to to get it actually put together because the construction of it is so precise. And uh, I hasten to use the word bling, but you know, it, at the time, this would have been a really showy, really extravagant dress. You know, and it kind of it doesn't necessarily match the character because Solitaire is quite a quiet and unassuming character. It almost speaks for her in terms of its shouts and it. it portrays money like new money as well so it's quite a quite an interesting sort of style piece for the for the team to choose i think yeah i think that's a good point phil i was going to say that it kind of yeah it doesn't match her character but it does match the scenario in which she's in if it wasn't over the top i think well i mean you guys think living that die is not great anyway but, but the, the story would be even weirder if it was a kind of a very mundane dress it needed to be over the top to show her relationship with uh, with mr big doesn't it yeah, and she's a she's a priestess, so she has to, I guess, have that. Even if she's quite unassuming, she has to have that sort of aura about her. All the way up to the hair. Her hair is quite incredible as well. It's huge. Um, and her eye makeup, which um, I've always tried to copy if I'm going out or something. And there is a lot of eyeshadow there, a lot of different colours. Um, so, yeah, it's it's very grand. Number five. And in at number five, we have Paloma's fight dress from No Time to Die. So I'm sure this dress is uh, fresh in the memories of many Bond fans. Um, and yeah, well, I mean, an absolutely stunning dress, really. Uh, and incredible that she's able to then do the do the actual fight scene. The chemistry with Daniel Craig is really good. Worked very well in the advertisement for the the film as well. I mean, false advertisement, many would say. That she's, she's not really in the film enough for our liking. Certainly the, more of her would have been better to kind of make that second part of No Time to Die more bearable. But yeah, an incredible dress. And I uh, don't know how she managed to uh, <laughs> to do all of that. Hit tape is the answer, I would think. Uh, yes, Paoloma and the dress is easily my favourite thing out of No Time to Die. <laughs> um, 
yeah, she was a fabulous character because she's beautiful. She's funny, really funny. And she could kick ass as well. So, yeah, I think she's fab. And that dress is stunning. It's designed by Michael Lasordo. And after it was used in No Time to Die, it was renamed the Bond 007 Paloma Maxi Dress. And you can still buy it for a mere £1,200. So uh, there you go. Um, If I ever have that much money, I'll maybe purchase one. And yes, the side splits, I think, helped make it a bit practical when she was kicking and spinning, etc. But uh, yeah, that that top would have needed a lot of tip tape, I think. Yes, I can quite imagine so. And But that's the thing, the design of the dress, I think, perfectly allows for the action sequence, certainly those splits and, you know, the amount of sort of sliding around doing splits across the floor that she ends up doing. I think there's like a spin, isn't there, at one point where she shoots one guy and then sort of swirls around and shoots someone else. But I also really like how the elegance of this dress and also there's some really bling accoutrements as well. There's sort of Chopard jewellery. Uh, Aquazura Linda high heels there's I think a Jimmy Choo handbag as well and they all quite nicely juxtapose how klutzy that character's personality is I mean when we first meet her she's just sipping a can of co- a bottle of coke rather isn't she it's not a an elegant martini and I just love that there's this sort of presentation of what we think is going to be a very kind of typically aloof you know too beautiful you know to really approach Bond girl who then turns out to be a bit of a doofus I think that's why that character works so brilliantly in at number four, we've got Sylvia Trench's casino dress from Dr. No, that beautiful, very iconic red dress. So when I was younger, Dr. No was one of my favourites. Um, it was one that I watched again and again and again. And this is the first ever Bond girl. So this dress is really, really important. Um, but it wasn't going to be <laughs> the first. There was a great story behind it when Eunice... The dress that was chosen for her initial casino scene was actually brown and gold. Um, And then when they walked onto the set, the set was actually brown and gold as well. So she disappeared right into the set. So Terence Young, the director, sent out Eunice and the wardrobe mistress to a nearby shop to get another one. When they went into this dress shop, they were dismayed to see that it now only sold wool. So... They weren't sure what to do. And on the way out, they saw this red dress that was hung up at the back of the shop. It was a size 20 and Eunice is a size 8. But the wardrobe mistress said, never mind the size, the colour is amazing. So she bought it, took it back to the set where she chopped a massive chunk out of the dress. And um, Eunice played that scene with the dress held together by clothes pegs. So um, I always thought she had quite a cool very steady and concise walk through that casino and I think I know why now in case she was worried it was going to just fall off. It's amazing I never knew that that was the story behind it I mean as you say it's kind of it is one of the iconic scenes as well obviously you know for most Bond fans that is one of their first memories of, of seeing the franchise obviously with Bond kind of being introduced to Trench as we've kind of said it's that importance that you know they had to get it right for that first dress because you know Bond is looking so elegant in the tuxedo that would become the iconic look for Bond. And this is almost the iconic starting point for the Bond women as well. The fact that it's this beautiful red cocktail dress that she's almost kind of, as you say, sort of swooping into the casino. And it's, yeah, it, it is telling that she doesn't tend to move a huge amount, but she's just there, you know, with with her cigarette and, and just at the, the casino table for most of that scene. 
Yeah, definitely. And, and as well as sort of, you know, just working that red as the colour that works in the casino and then stands out against everything. And, you know, it, it's garish in a couple of senses, isn't it? First of all, the fact that this is a colour film at a time when still a lot of British cinema was black and white. Um, and it's a big marker of the, the new sort of sexuality that was coming in 60s Britain, and which these films just absolutely run with. I guess the the kind of one, two of seeing Eunice Gason in this dress and then in the next scene in nothing apart from one of Bond's shirts, it is very much, as Phil says, it's start as you mean to go on in terms of what you're doing with this really powerful and much more, you know, sort of overt and kind of exciting portrayal of sexuality through costuming. Number three. So in at number three, we have Severin's black casino dress from Skyfall, one of the modern era's kind of very elegant and, and a bit of a shift from what we'd seen before in terms of dress design. So, of course, Severin is a very vulnerable and damaged character and kind of Bond sees that straight away. But she still carries off this beautiful look with the, um, not shoulder pads, but the sort of lace on the side of the dress, you know, the very elegant style. And it was... I'm hoping I'm pronouncing the name right, but it was designed by Janie Tamim, um, and I think it was actually featured in Vogue as well. So it's it's just a really, really stunning piece of design, and and you know, and it's carried off beautifully by Berenice Marlowe as well. Yeah, this is a real showstopper. So detailed and so complex. So apparently, it took six months to create this dress. Um, so it has that sheer body that you mentioned, and that was covered with tattoo effect transfers. And then the corset bodice over the front and a floor length satin skirt. And then it's covered in 60,000 Swarovski crystals. They were applied by hand as well. <laughs> and they had to make six of those dresses too. Um, so she changed twice a day in filming. And they'd actually have to sew her into the dress because it was so complicated. And Jenny Tamim's quote about Severine, she said, Severine, she's a naughty girl. I wanted her to look sexy and exceptional and dark. Well, I'd say she succeeded. Yes, and then some. Um, and apparently Berenice Marlowe actually had a little bit of a hand in the design of the dress, sort of ensuring that it had that sort of animal, very specifically dragon-esque uh, look, which alongside that incredible makeup she has, like particularly around her eyes as well, and those long black fingernails, I think, as well. It just, everything in the look of the character suits the backstory, but also the location, that incredible sort of Macau, I think it's Macau Casino that they're in. And it, it just all feeds into just how good that dialogue seems with her and Bond at the bar is just the way that it's this almost kind of verbal duel, this joust where she's trying to maintain her mystique. He's sort of trying to penetrate through to the heart of who she is to see if she can give him the information, get him the into, you know, the, the sort of villain's island that he needs. All of which makes it all the more ironic that that character was ultimately remembered for the next uh, scene she's in with the awkward shower, because I think, you know, it would be much more fitting if we remembered her for this incredible outfit. Yeah, it's interesting. You get this trapped character and she's quite literally trapped in the dress, isn't she? <laughs> the way that it's uh, it's been designed. What would happen to those? You said six of them were made, Carrie. What? Because you work in film now. What What would happen to those dresses afterwards? Would they get sold at auctions? Well, I guess this one's quite uh, expensive. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if this one went into an auction in the end. A lot of the main sort of hero stuff, as they call it, the really sort of iconic stuff, whether it's a prop or a dress, usually gets kept and then it'll be either if there's exhibitions you know you have bond in motion there's a lot of dresses that go there 
so they might go into an exhibition you never know they might go into an auction i really need to be rich so that i can buy all of these myself number two and in at number two just missing the top spot it's anya amasova's dress from the calibre nightclub in the spy who loved me uh this is phenomenal isn't it it's incredibly classy and impressive even though it seems very simple it really you know it's a bold accentuation not just of barbara back's incredible figure but also it just allows her to be really powerful and straightforward and, and just feeds into her being that match for Bond, who when they're sort of going through each other's dossiers at the bar, she sort of beats him at his own game. You know, she exposes his vulnerability rather than the other way around. And the colour of it's great. It works both in the club, but also in the action later on in the pyramids. That colour stands out. Sort of a great match with his tuxedo as well against those sort of yellow and white sands. So it's it's a wonderful piece, this. Yeah, this one is my absolute favourite and the costume designer, Ronald Patterson, I think it was, obviously just saw Barbara back and looked at that figure. I mean, you just want to show that off as much as you possibly can. I mean, she's she just looks stunning. And you've got that plunging neckline again, that classic um, sort of Bond girl style. It's navy blue silk. It has also the Swarovski crystal edging and the straps that go over the backless um, dress as well. And the backless part makes it extra sexy as well. This actually, this very dress was sold at auction just recently um, and it got over £40,000. Um, so uh, some more saving up for me, unfortunately. Well, we're we're often quite critical of the 007 store, so I wonder if they'll uh, have anything more reasonable in in the future. But uh, they sell a fake one for that price, so it's actually quite a bargain. Yeah, we're quite critical of the 007 store on on here, but uh, but no, as, as you say, Carrie, it's one of those iconic ones dresses from the entire series. But slightly controversially, I w- I was a bit torn between including this dress or including Anya Massive's dress towards the end of the film. Of course, both uh, are amazing, so I, I was sort of trying to see which one would win out but this one in the end as as we've said kind of possibly is one of the best dresses of the entire franchise if not the best obviously we will we'll get to number one but it's as you say it's, it's that elegance and that simplicity of it that makes it so timeless and so elegant i love that purple i can't remember if it was dress or trousers at the end i absolutely loved that too and she rocked it she looked fabulous uh the bit that really bugged me just because i am nerdy and you know you watch something over and over again was in the uh that little submarine thing the escape submarine seeing her clothes actually dyed all over the lovely cream upholstery so if you watch it there's just all this like purpley pink all over the upholstery where it all leaked um because she was wet from all the water so uh yeah that was a bit i remember (laughs) of that that's why Sir Freddie Gray is actually really annoyed that they've died the, the seats. What are you doing, Bond? That must be why he's annoyed, yeah, because they've all watched Bond having sex at this point so many times, it probably isn't that as such. It's also that dress must belong to Carl Stromberg, right? Because he sort of kidnaps her in the Lipperus. I don't think she'd have brought it with her for the mission on the submarine when they're, you know, sort of doing that originally. So that's just an item he happened to have. Number one. At number one, we have Vespa Lynn's casino dress from Casino Royale. Rightfully at the top, it is incredible. It was meant to cause a stir as she walked into the casino, and it certainly did. It's a purple silk gown designed by Roberto Cavalli, and it was chosen by the costume designer Lindy Hemming. 
Again, we've got that signature plunging beaded neckline and we've got the backless style. Again, the smoky eye comes in as well. And as I said, I am a big fan of a smoky eye. So just the whole look is absolutely jaw dropping. And I think that's Eva Green's figure again that, that really makes that. So on, on, a, on an obvious level, it's just an incredible dress. It really does make everybody swoon. But actually, there's a lot of thought that goes into costume design and dresses. So this colour and fabric would have been thought about very carefully because of what happens next. So it's purple silk. And then when she comes into the casino, that purple is very vibrant and the silk helps make sort of that vibrancy. But after following the, the villain Urbano's murder, when Bond finds Vespa in the shower, the dress has turned almost um, black. It's so, so dark. So that silk would have soaked in all of that water rather than repel it. So the changing colour of a costume can actually play a very significant part in what the character is going through as well. That happens quite often in films. Absolutely. I think, as you say, character worthy number one. And it's just that moment where she sort of almost glides across the casino with with the dress on. It's, you know, as you say, with that very deep cut V line as well. And it's just, although she's meant to put everyone else off, she ends up putting Bond off his stride. And it's sort of, you can just tell that's where she, she's kind of getting a little bit of the upper hand because she knows he's going to be breathless by by the sort of the beauty of it. And and yeah, as you say, it's very much a dress that fits Vesper's character as well because it's you know elegant but a lot of detail is is in in the background of it and what is brilliant in the context of the story as well is that Bond has picked this dress for her hasn't he she she says that line is this something you expect me to wear so I mean Bond clearly has an incredible eye for like dress sizes but also it's the fact that as we've alluded to he's copying the ploy he saw from Solange earlier in the Bahamas and we've talked about that scene independently as well the fact that he's sort of in his head oh, I've got an idea how to distract everyone else. Of course, he ends up kind of as distracted as the others in the end. Um, but I love that it's the same dress in that amazing shower scene as well, because it's it sort of exposes both of their vulnerability, doesn't it? The fact that he's in there and the white T-shirt turns see-through as well. So suddenly these two stunning-looking characters who are giving this really concrete, powerful image suddenly reduced to sopping messes and like their vulnerability totally exposed. Yeah, very true. Such an important uh, set of scenes. So I'm very glad that we've got this at number one. Yeah, it's a really important dress. Next, we have the James Bond Film Club, in which Adam reviews a film with Bond connections. Uh, now, Dwayne Johnson does have connections to the Bond universe. His grandfather appears in You Only Live Twice, as we all know. But oddly, doesn't uh, he doesn't appear in this one. Uh, over to Adam. No, he oddly doesn't. I thought I'd start with a big blockbuster treat and go back to 1996's The Rock. So produced by the, uh, the action maestro double team, Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, his last film, actually. Directed by Michael Bay, only his second film after Bad Boys. Of course, he goes on to rather infamously do the Transformers movies. And starring Sean Connery, the big Sean himself, Nicolas Cage, Ed Harris and Dr. Cox from Scrubs. So Harris plays an angry widowed Marine general who gets a rogue commando unit to seize Alcatraz Prison Island and hold the city hostage with some chemical weapons laden rockets. And the FBI now need two people to lead a team to defuse this situation. One is Nick Cage's 
chemical weapons expert, the super nerd Stanley Goodspeed, who really doesn't want to go anywhere near that frontline, runny, shooty, bangy action stuff. And the other is longtime secret prisoner John Mason, played, of course, by Connery, a British former intelligence agent, um, who is the only man to ever have escaped from Alcatraz Island. And so the two form an unlikely alliance and friendship, and they team up not just to save the city, but also to try and help Mason escape US custody once and for all. So the 90s was a real peak for action cinema. And this, I tell you, remains one of my very favourites. It was part of a big, amazing run for Cage uh, alongside Con Air and Face Off at the time. Uh, but this is really great fun. It's a very original story. The screenplay is really witty, has some proper zingers in it with actually quite engaging and complex characters. Even the villain has quite a sympathetic motivation for taking hostages on the island. It's all about sort of getting memorials for sort of Marines who were killed in Black Ops. Um, and it's still based best film by miles because so much of the stunts and the action is real and in camera uh, but of course the big draw is the connery cage chemistry connery liked pairing with younger actors in this era of course kevin costner in the untouchables alec baldwin in hunt for red october and his old school style contrasts really brilliantly with um, cage's maverick energy also bay's weirdly one of the directors connery rarely stood up for in this area he actually went to the studio and told them to give him more money so that he could make the film properly. Uh, and that's quite extraordinary. Connery usually clashed with these sort of young Maverick directors. Please see Stephen Norrington and the case of The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen for more on that. Of course, the big fan theory surrounding The Rock now is, is this actually a sequel to the Connery Bond films? And is Mason just an older version of Bond himself? And interestingly, roughly the time he's been in prison in the film marries up between the time between this film and Diamonds Are Forever. Of course, the problem then is where's Never Say Never Again feature? Was that just some weird prison fever dream? And, and is that why he's so randy and horny in it? Because he's just been, you know, locked up uh, in secret by the FBI for a decade. Um, but yeah, this film was a big hit at the time. Fourth highest grossing film of the year after Independence Day, Twister and Mission Impossible 1. And it still holds up as a fun thrill ride today. Whenever it's next on Channel 5 or ITV3 or whichever channel shows these films now, check it out again. It's It's fun every single time. I must admit, Adam, this is, I've said it before on the podcast with my sort of guilty pleasure films and the, uh, you know, the films you'd watch on a rainy Sunday afternoon. The Rock is right up there. You know, A View to a Kill and The Rock are pretty much competing with each other for, you know, for for those days when you just want to put a film on that's just good fun, just good action, but above all has a good storyline as well. and, And The Rock delivers on all of those. Um, and kudos to Cage actually as well. He 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 has to tread the fine line of being a leading man and a sort of supporting actor with Connery, who kind of steals the show at points. Yeah, I don't think I've seen it, Phil. This is like you not watching Indiana Jones. I think I've seen clips of it, but I don't think I've sat down and watched the whole film start to finish. So I'm, I feel like I'm going to have to. Oh yeah, you must watch The Rock. I have seen the first hour of The Rock a lot more than the rest of it because it used to start at nine o'clock on telly, and I'd have to go to bed at ten. So the second half of the film I'm not quite as familiar with. But, oh, no, you've got to check it out. And so we move to our next segment. Uh, it might be a terrible mistake, but uh, that's the whole point. It's a segment about mistakes and gaffes. It's a return of Phil's bloopers. Just as long as he leaves Hawk of a Candy out of this, uh, let's go over to Phil. I can confirm Hawker does not feature in this week's Bomb Bloopers. We would never bring the, the reputation or honour of Hawker into disrepute. He is, of course, the world's greatest caddie. Uh, if you haven't guessed already, of course, this week's Bomb Bloopers is looking at Goldfinger. 
one of the films that we hold in quite high regard, really, as, as a podcast. We, you know, it's one of the better Bond films. That said, there's still plenty of moments where there are Bond gaffes. And as it turns out, as I was doing my research for this, there are even bigger car nerds than me because I found out something that was so anoraki I, I had to put it in. But anyway, we'll get to that point. So one of the probably most famous incidents of a Bond gaff is when Bond is, of course, driving the Aston Martin through Goldfinger's plant, uh, trying to escape from the goons. We clearly see the iconic moment where the guard who is sitting next to Bond with the pistol about to shoot him. Bond flicks up the centre of the gear stick and just presses the red button and the baddie then flies out of the top. It's pretty clearly obvious that that's a dummy flying out of the top and basically a bloke behind shoving it out the window. So again, 1960s editing didn't really leave much to, to the imagination with that. It's you know clearly a dummy flying out. Just coming on to the infamous gold painting scene as well, obviously when Odd Job murders Miss Case with painting her gold all over, the, the idea is that skaters have to leave a, a space clear at the base of their back to avoid suffocation. This is all complete fantasy. It was all dreamt up by Ian Fleming. Apparently, if, if you just cover yourself all in paint, you just sweat a lot more because it's just extra... I mean, obviously, don't try this at home. I'm not suggesting that everybody tries to paint themselves gold and see what happens because, you know, we, we can't come back to your lawsuits. So this was, you know, kind of one of those, of the time even, people knew this to be false, um, but it's kind of lived on in, in kind of myth and infamy. Now, one of the most, I had to put this in, as I say, one of the most kind of nerdy moments, when Oddjob executes the gangster when... Uh, sorry, when Goldfinger gasses them all in his ranch. Obviously, we see that Oddjob takes away the gangster that didn't want to pay out. And we clearly see the Lincoln Continental that he's driving gets crushed into a tiny, tiny cube and is then loaded into the back of the Ford Ranchero pickup truck that Oddjob drives away. Now, I've never really questioned this before. I've, I've always just thought that was quite a, you know, a straightforward incident. But apparently on IMDb and other pages, you can find that people are very outraged about this because apparently the Lincoln Continental, its engine alone would have been too big to have fit in the back of that pickup truck, even when it was crushed to the size of a very, very small cube. And apparently the curb weight and the, the maximum carrying capacity of, of the Ranchero pickup truck would have also meant it would have come to more than eight times its maximum load. So if indeed the car had been crushed and put into the back of the truck, it would have probably collapsed on the spot because it couldn't physically hold the weight of the gold bullion in the boots and the weight of the vehicle as well. And just to finish off, there's, of course, numerous bloopers that, you you know, go back through Goldfinger. And, and if you have the time to take a bit of a closer look at it, please do. But probably the one that made me chuckle the most was during Pussy Galore's flying circus demonstration. Obviously, we see the planes all coming to land in sequence, and the first plane comes on spot perfectly, and then the rest follow suit. If you're very eagle-eyed, you may just spot the stunt pilot, who is very clearly a man wearing what may be described as a baseball cap with some sort of pigtail hair coming off the side of it. I'm not sure if we're not meant to notice this, but it really doesn't look like the same person when they get out of the plane. Um, it's also quite entertaining to note that he nearly hits the camera as he's coming into land. So a few quite famous gaffes and a few of the maybe lesser known ones. 
Um, but overall, Goldfinger is still one to be uh, applauded, I think. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, quite especially anal um roundup of bloopers there, <laughs> particularly about the the crushing uh the cube crusher. Surely the biggest blooper of that is that there isn't like a huge streaky trail of Soho's blood that like is just left behind as they're like shunting this cube along. I mean, not to mention the plot hole that he kills all of them anyway. So, I mean, which one would you have preferred, crushed into a cube or killed with the gas in the uh in the room? already dead he'd already been shot so it's just overkill in the end it's just you know just to make sure he's definitely dead why does he have to crush the whole car though what can't odd job just drive back with him in the boot i mean there's no reason for anyone to pick him up the, the only other people at the stud farm are also gangsters they're not gonna care and they're also already dead at this point like who's this who's this benefit for so now it's time for the Questions branch segment. Uh, over to Phil. This is where we find out your correspondence. Uh, what questions have you been asking us this week? Yes, thanks very much, Martin. So we've had um, plenty of interaction on our social channels this week. First up, we had a hypothetical question from James Longshaw, basically asking the three of us if all of the Bond actors as such were in their prime and they were involved in a punch-up between themselves, and obviously depending where they'd have this punch-up, who would come out on top? For me, I actually think it would probably be Sean, just because he was a former boxer himself and in peak physical fitness, I think he'd, he'd probably win. You know, we're, we're talking, there wouldn't be any gadgets, you know, any sleight of hands or anything like that. It's literally just fists out, kicking seven bells out of each other. I don't know if you guys would agree, but for me, Sean would get the get the winning vote. Yeah, I think I'll, I'd go along with you on that, Phil. I think Pierce would be in the corner drawing some weird art. Um, Connery, I think it'd be between Connery and Craig, I think would be the final two. They seem to have the, the physicality, don't they? Need I remind you two of George Lazenby's uh, quite extreme kung fu skills as demonstrated in The Man from Hong Kong. So I think you're counting Lazenby out. But if Lazenby had his peak, he broke the stuntman's nose. That's how he got the Bond role. I, I'd even say Lazenby now could probably have a good go at Daniel Craig. Well, he certainly beat Roger Moore now, wouldn't he? And Connor. I don't think Moore yeah, was if... putting up much fight at any age. So I was going to say, if we were based on now... I think Connery and Moore would be out quite quickly. <laughs> I mean, Dalton wouldn't even fight, would he? Dalton would just like get a bit sort of a, a kind of hauteur about the whole thing and just sort of walk off in disdain. And Daniel Craig, you'd think he'd do well, but he'll have some sort of existential crisis at the wrong moment and then just get punched his lights out. Um, thank you to, to James for that question. We also had um, a couple of questions coming from Matt H this week. Are there any exotic locations you think geopolitically a modern Bond story should be set in, but has not been to so far? So he suggests, could Bond go to the Australian outback or New Zealand? Or could we see a Bond film that's totally focused in Canada or the United States, but sort of maybe the southern states again? What do you guys think? Are there any locations where Bond hasn't gone where you think he probably should do? He would go to South Africa and then half the film is just him trying to get his car back because he gets it jacked in the first five minutes. Is that the equivalent of Dude, Where's My Car? Basically, yeah. And it wouldn't be hard to find a Bond villain in South Africa, would it? Well, it'd be the return of that man from Die Another Day, wouldn't it? Um, so, yes, yeah, so I don't think he's been to South Africa, but no, I, I agree. I think that would be a great location. I, do, I would also like to see an Australian Bond film. You know, I think we could bring back Lazenby in a cameo role, maybe as like a disgruntled uh, Australian... I don't know, an Australian official who's fed up with Bond's meddling or something like that. I think that would be a nice little 
cameo for him to come back into the franchise. Um, bit of a quick Q branch this week, but thank you to James and to Matt H for your, your questions this week. And as we always say, please do give us a follow. And if you've got any questions or su- suggestions or theories, please do get in touch. No, 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 st- no, stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! So we move to the final segment of the show, the quiz. Adam has a vice-like, teehee-like grip on the cubby cup. Uh, let's hope he turns into a butter hook for uh, Series 4. Uh, I'm setting the questions this week, and it's very simple. We're looking at the rejected Bond theme songs. So I'll give you the name of a band or artist, uh, and all you have to do is tell me which of the 25 Bond films they wrote a song for that was ultimately rejected. For example, if I say Katie Lang, the answer would, of course, be Tomorrow Never Dies. So uh, who wants to go first? Well, guys, we've got set A and set B. I'll take, I'll take set A for Adam. For you, Adam. No, question number one, uh, we have Johnny Cash. Yes, I know I've heard this. He did the alternative to Thunderball, didn't he? And his very Johnny Cash is the Thunderball. He did indeed. And I, I listened to it this afternoon. That's quite good, actually. I quite liked it. Maybe not as, obviously not as good as Tom. Oh, no, well, no one's as good as Tom Jones, are they? <laughs> Elvis wants as good as Tom Jones. And Elvis told him that in Vegas once in 1975. Very good. So one point to Adam. Over to you, Phil. We have Shirley Bassey. And actually, there are two answers. For, uh, for this one, Shirley Bessie. One of the Daniel Craig ones, and I can't remember which one it was. I'm going to say Skyfall, because I'm sure that might have been one she was in the running for, but I, I can't remember, actually. Oh, Phil, you've slipped up on question number one there. Shirley Bessie, uh, I thought you would have known uh, Thunderball as well. Another Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang uh, was the famous one, but uh, yeah. she also did No Good About Goodbye, which was for Quantum of Solace. That was it, yes. You were, I knew, so close. I knew, I knew it was one of the Daniel Craig ones. That was it, yeah. Okay, so one nil to Adam. Back to you for question number two. We have the Pet Shop Boys. Ooh, I don't know this at all. Okay, so the Pet Shop Boys, big in the sort of late 80s. Uh, I'm going to guess that they did some sort of Living Daylights one and then they went with Aha. Let's say the Living Daylights. That was well-reasoned, Adam, and the correct answer. Well done, the Living Daylights, the Pet Shop Boys. So you're 2-0 up. Phil, you need this one to stay in the game. Your question I'm going to lose this, aren't I? (laughs) Your question two is... Alice Cooper. I'm going to say the man with the golden gun, but I think it might be wrong. You're correct, Phil. Well done. Let's see if clawed it back there. 2-1. The score's going into the final question. Adam, for the win, Radiohead. Yeah, I do know this. Radiohead did what is actually quite a good atmospheric uh, song for Spectre. They did. Well done, Adam. You've won the quiz as as usual. You're already one nil up in series four. I'm sure you won't relinquish the uh, the leadership, uh, but we'll try our best in the uh, the future quizzes. Uh, Phil, you're just out of interest. Your final one was uh, Ace of Base. They were going to be chosen for Goldeneye because they were they'd recorded one for it and they were nearly there to be chosen. Yeah, so I did I did know that one, but you no, did, that yeah, well, that was. Well done, three two. Then we'll say that's the the overall final oh, okay, score. Fair. But no, that that was well played from Adam. That was a that was a tough uh, tough couple. Of, I I must admit, when it's the artists that don't get picked, I'm a little bit weaker on uh, on the Bond songs. So no, that was well played, Adam. 
Okay, well done, guys. So uh, that brings us to the end of the episode. Thanks a lot for joining us for our new series four. We'll continue our main feature, of course, choosing the direction of Bond 26. So do get in touch with us before our next episode. Let us know your thoughts on who you think should be the new 007 and the new director of the next film. That's about it for uh, for today's episode. Thanks a lot for listening. I was Martin. I was Adam. I was Phil. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. You're best. Only losers whine about their best. Winners go home and the prom queen. <laughs>